Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Hi, I'm Heather Renee May, and this is Flipping Dreams Podcast. One, two, three, four. Welcome back, Flipping Dreamers. Uh, We are continuing this sort of mini-series where I'm reading to you this memoir uh, by Muriel Wiley Blanchett, The Curve of Time. And we're going to start off this episode with the next chapter called Lakes. Sometimes during the long summers, we would get a longing to soak the salt out of ourselves. Charts are concerned only with the sea. They are not interested in what lies beyond the shores. They mark all the mountains for a mile inland, the highest ones with the altitude noted, but they are all aids to navigation. At the bottom of some charts, they even have pictures of how mountains rear and fold at the entrance to various sounds. Navigators approaching strange shores and confronted with a solid line of mountains know from the pictures that if they approach a mountain on a certain al- of a certain altitude with other mountains that fold in a certain way onto either side, then a certain sound or harbor will open out as they approach closer. But it has evidently never occurred to the cartographer that a small navigator might like to know of a small lake where he could soak the salt out. Archibald Menzies, the botanist who accompanied Captain Vancouver on the first trip up this coast, often made special notes of the waterfalls they came across. I expect that they did use them for filling up the water casks as well. But I always have a mental picture of Captain Vancouver, Archibald Menzies, the botanist, and the other young gentlemen standing under the waterfalls soaking out the salt. After all, Vancouver's ships were on the coast for four months in 1792. They took shelter and anchored at night in the same coves as we did. They did most of their exploring in their small boats. Except for trying to make friends with the Indians, many of whom had not seen white men before, they lived the same kind of life that we did and were concerned with the same kind of problems. So it is natural to suppose that they, too, liked to get the salt out at times. Waterfalls are all right in their way, but they are usually cold. The lakes that over the years we have marked on our charts in red are warm. To qualify for the red mark, there must also be a safe place to leave the boat. The lakes are often some distance inland, 
and you can't soak properly if you are worrying about your boat. If some, it was sometimes fishermen, but usually loggers, who told us about these lakes. They would mark on the chart the bay in which to look for the stream if we couldn't find or use the old skid road. Just walk up the bed of the stream, and then you'll come to the lake. We were in there 10 or 15 years ago, logging, they would say. Once, following directions like that, we were lucky to find the stream. If we hadn't noticed it coming out through the rocks at low tide, it would have been impossible to find. There was an almost impenetrable fringe of alders, maples, and salmon berries above the beach, which we worried and tore at. When we finally broke through, we were in a mysterious low tunnel of green growth, all clutching to hold us back. The little stream eddied and gurgled on its way to the sea. It was twilight in there, and what with getting scratched with branches and slipping off the rocks, we one by one came to the conclusion that 15 years was a long time to remember just which bay. At this rate, we would never find the lake. Then suddenly, it was lighter ahead, and the sun came through in shafts, making irregular, shimmering patches on the stream. At last, we struggled and broke through onto the shore of the little hidden lake. I didn't know how long that little unnamed lake was, two miles at least, and perhaps half a mile wide. It was set down in the center of pale green growth, alders and maples that had rapidly covered the scars the loggers had left. And above the new growth, more green, dark green hills, fold on fold. Halfway down the lake, a very disturbing, a very disturbed loon was calling and calling. I don't suppose anyone had been there in there since the loggers had left, and probably its mother had told it that man never came here. We swam and we soaked, then we lay in the sun, thoroughly fagged out for a moment. Fresh water is enervating compared with salt water and much harder to swim in. The youngsters found some little turtles sunning themselves on a log. When the whispering began, I knew that they were planning to keep them in the boat for the rest of the summer. How awful to have to face up to a thing like that, feeling as limp as I did. Then fortunately, John's turtle bit his finger. When I heard him say sternly to it, you are very rude, you can go right back to your mother. I knew that the problem was partially solved. But I would certainly have to keep an eye on Peter, or a turtle would turn up in the boat later. Peter and John went exploring along the deer trail at the edge of the lake. The two little naked boys suddenly began dancing up and down on the shore. We found a dugout! We found a dugout! Jan ran over to investigate. More shouts, and I ran too. It was long and very old, but it floated. It didn't take us long with our knives to fashion paddles out of this and that. Then, lunch pail tucked in the bow, we paddled down the lake towards a low rocky point about a mile away. The dugout leaked quite a bit, and finally Peter and John had to take turns bailing with the lunch pail. The loon was having hysterics now. Probably its wife and nest were hidden in the reeds that filled the little bay. The water was smooth as a looking glass, and a reflection followed along under us as though we were hinged together. I would have liked to linger on the lake, but the water in the dugout was gaining on us, and it seemed expedient, as Van Captain Vancouver would have said, to make the shore. There were signs that deer had been browsing in behind the rocky point where maples overhung the cropped green grass. They would lie there in the shade on a hot afternoon and their spotted babies would be hidden in the bracken beyond. How can a mother deer stand the constant alert for prowling bears or cougars? A doe's ears are always turning this way and that, tuning in on the slightest sound, smelling the wind for a betraying scent. I seldom had to tune in for anything worse than a turtle that might bite. We turned the dugout over to dry a while. We ate our lunch on the shelving rock. We tried to caulk the crack with pine needles and pitch. It was a long, long crack, but half a crack is better than a whole crack. Paddling back with bits of this and that was harder than before, but bailing was reduced by half. 
It was an effort in that limp state to have to squeeze through the pale green tunnel again. Then the children cornered a 10-inch trout by damming up its escape route. The trout never had a chance against three pairs of hands. I got tired of waiting while they planned further strategy, telling them that I would light a fire on the beach and bring the supper things ashore. I pushed ahead and finally broke through to the beach head first. I lighted a fire and piled it up with bark, estimating that in an hour's time there would be a glowing bed of embers just right for broiling trout. It was the sound of their voices that woke me up, all smiling broadly. They actually had caught three more. That little one is John's, Peter announced, because he can't eat as much. I can't so, I'm just starved. Well, Jan and Peter will have to clean them, I said, and took them out to the boat with me to prevent murder. We always carried a rack for broiling fish. Soon they were spluttering and browning over a perfect fire, which I raked over between two flat stones. We built it up with more driftwood, which is always piled high at the top of the beaches on British Columbia, on the British Columbia coast. No one had any desire to fool around that evening. John fell asleep before it was even dark. The northern lights were edging this way and that way across the northern sky, reaching up above us, white and elusive, then retreating hurriedly down to the horizon. It wasn't until Jan suddenly said, Mommy, where's the dinghy? that my spirits returned to its limp body. I didn't actually have to swim, but very nearly. Somebody had committed the sin of sins, not tied it properly. I didn't ask. I didn't probe too deeply within myself. Evidently, a certain amount of salt is better than too little. The next chapter is called Shiners. I left the children lying on their stomachs on the float, fishing for shiners with thread and a bent pin. Shiners are little glittering fishes that like to congregate under wharfs or floats. They are thin, but almost round in profile. When I rode back later, the children are start, all started shouting to me as soon as I was within earshot. Mine did it first, mine did it first, it did too, Jan. That was Peter's voice. I finally made myself hurt. If Peter's did whatever it did first, then let him tell me whatever it did first. My fish borned a baby, he brought out triumphantly. Mine kept borning and borning them, added John with scorn. I just squeezed it. Anyway, it's perfectly true, said Jan, and they can swim right away. We'll show you. I waited while they baited up their pins with bits of sea worm and lay down to catch more shiners, dangling the bait in front of the seeking mouse. I sat there full of superior knowledge. I have several times caught salmon that had been feeding heavily among the Brit and have had them regurgitate a minnow that was quite able to swim away, pressing it again and getting the hook out and another small Jonah had made the world. I would wait until they showed me, and then I would explain to them the habits of fish. They waited until they each had caught a shiner, then crouched there waiting for the miracle to happen. Squeeze them, finally ordered Jan. They squeezed them. From the vent of each shiner came forth a perfectly formed silver baby. They were slim and narrow, not round and deep like their mothers. The second they were put in the water, they darted to the bottom, to the weeds and safety. John kept on squeezing his, and his fish went on borning babies just as he said he has said, but each next baby was more transparent than the last, and they began to look like vague little ghosts with all their inner workings showing through. When you dropped them in the water, they seemed all bewildered, and in seconds, the big shiners closed in and swallowed them at a gulp and eagerly waited around for more. I stopped John then and explained that they were not ready to be born yet, that their mother probably let only one out each day when it was properly finished and had all its instincts and was able to fend for itself in the big sea. Undoubtedly, now that I knew, these shiner babies were being born all the time at certain seasons. Perhaps their mothers were wise and only born them in the dark night. Then tiny phosphorescent streaks would dart for the seaweed. Seaweed. Then the awful thought reared its head. Did the mothers know their own babies? 
or did the babies have to elude the tiger's pounce of their own mother? I didn't bear to think about. When we got back to Little House in the Fall, I would find out from the Encyclopedia Britannica 1885 just what it had to say about all this. Perhaps for a change, I'd be able to tell it something it didn't know. After all, Encyclopedia Britannica 1885 states quite calmly in black print that malaria comes from the bad night air. Then I remembered my own little lecture, which fortunately had never been delivered. I conceded in my mind that we all make mistakes. Encyclopedia Britannica 1885. Yes, it knew all about viviparous fish. These shiners, as we call them, are a kind of rock perch. They and many others of that species are viviparous. One more chapter, a fish we remember. We had tucked into the little cove at the north end of Denman Island for the night with no intention of staying over the next day. We had made a fire in the northeast beach, the only place there was any beach left above a very high tide. It was a still, quiet evening, and when it was dark, the salmon started rising to the light that our fire cast on the calm water. Peter was feverishly carving a spear and hardening its point in the fire, just in case a fish came close enough to the rock, to the little rocky point. Off the end of Denman Island, there is a great sandy bar that extends more than half a mile to the north and more than four miles west, almost to Cape Lazo. Plain sand would not be such a menace, but all the shadows are strewn with great boulders, which I think must wander all over the place in big winds. Just as you can move a boulder out of your garden by tucking more soil underneath it with the crowbar until it moves slowly but surely up to the surface, in the same way, the big waves and the sand shift the boulders here and there. It means going a long way round to Cape Lazo to get past this sandy bar. If you try to cut through, you are suddenly surrounded by a maze of boulders. Every time you turn to avoid one, another steps directly in front of you to block your way. In other summers, you may have to take fixes on distant points or trees and think you have worked out a passage. But the boulders have anticipated this and have, been spent, have spent the intervening time inching their way into your supposed channel. At low tide, there is perhaps six feet of water over the sand, sometimes more, sometimes less, but no one ever knows how much over the boulders. A salmon rises and splashes in the firelight, and then a seal surfaces with a loud snort. Peter, who has been standing on the rock with his spear poised for the last half hour, groans, Missed just by inches. We all laugh, for it had been at least six feet. Then I hurry off to bed. Peter is crying because there will never be another chance like this. I, who knew he never had a chance at all, console him by saying, we will tie a heavy fish line to it next time so he can cast the spear. A minute later, he is laughing about the seal who had snorted because it had also missed the fish by inches. I had planned to leave after breakfast and cut across to the mainland and up to Desolation Sound. And here I was gazing out over low tide on the sand flats, the sea-like glass, and not a cloud in the sky, and surely after lunch would do just as well. The youngsters sat there watching me anxiously with deep sighs. Then they somehow knew before I did myself that we were going to stay, and I had to hurry up with the proviso just until after lunch. The tide must have been slack as well as low. For not a ripple nor a current stirred the surface of the water as we drifted silently over the sandy bottom and the surprise boulders. I just gave a gentle pull on the oars now and then, trying to blend ourselves in with the life of the sand dwellers below. Big red crabs with enormous claws would sidle across it at an angle, making for the shelter of a boulder. We didn't knew, know who their enemies were. Perhaps they didn't know who we were. We must have appeared like strange two-headed beasts to them, our faces joined nose to nose with our reflections in the water. 
Bands of silverly, silvery minnows darted in unison, first here, then there. Some unknown mass signal seemed to control them, like sandpipers flying low over the edge of a beach. The fluid concerted movement, concave edge changing to convex, and then vice versa. Or crows at some unknown signal dropping helter-skelter head over heels, down through the air towards earth and destruction, then as suddenly resuming their flight on normal wings like perfectly sane crows. With the minnows, we could see that it was probably a preservation idea. They and their shadows escaping bigger shadows and threatening dangers. But who gives the signal and how is it made? Look, look, in whispers, first from one and then the others. I could see on my side of the dinghy, but not on John's. Jan, up in the bow, had a seat of her, a sea of her own. Peter's end, particularly his. Suddenly on my side, suspended perfectly motionless, about four feet down in the shadow, cast by the dinghy, was a strange fish, as though thereby intent, waiting for us. I hissed, pointing carefully, and all the crew hung, suspended motionless and precariously over the edge, all eyes focused on the fish. It was about two feet long, shaped rather like a salmon, but there the resemblance ended. This fish was a pale cream color, laced over with half-inch bands of old gold in a large diamond pattern. Its eyes were dark, large, and oval. Dark folds or eyelids opened and shut, opened and shut. It lay there chewing, or was it the gills like a jawline that gave it a, a, the ruminating appearance? Something hadn't liked this cream and gold fish. One piece of its tail was gone, and one of its side fins was torn and ragged, all rather disheveled and rooted-looking. It just lay there quietly, raising and lowering its large oval eye, eyelids. We suspended in our dinghy. It suspended in the safety of our shadow. That, of course, is probably why it was there, for protection. Then a seal broke water, and the glassy surface was in turmoil. When it had quiet, quietened, our creamy and goldfish had gone. Probably the same seal that ruined my fish last night, said Peter. Then he and Jan slid into the water and tried to see how many boulders they could touch before they got to shore. The tide was rising, and the water still so glassy. When we left after lunch, we cut across the bar of the sand and the boulders with John and Peter lying flat in the bow. Then we ambled across the 25-mile stretch of open water towards Savory Island over on the mainland. We fooled around and tried to find Mystery Reef and couldn't. Then we moved on up to the ragged islands for supper and perhaps the night. I think we all felt groggy with the glare off the water, and it was good to get in close to the cliffs in the shade. There seemed to be a slight, hardly noticeable swell as I cooked supper, with one foot up in the steering seat as usual. The air was almost oppressively still and my face was burning like fire. A tugboat tooted at the entrance to the cove. He wanted to tie up just where we were anchored. Why on earth did they want to tie up on an evening like this? Then the pieces began to fall into place, and I snatched Jan's bathing cap off the barometer where it hung all day. The glass was down to 29, and it had been over 31 at breakfast time. I told Jan to take over the supper and handed the, t the table that lived on top of the engine box to Peter and told them to carry on. I waved at the tug, which tooted again, and I pulled up the anchor. If we were going to ride out at Southeaster, we would do it up in Desolation Sound in the cove on Mink Island, where there was water and room to roam around, not in a ragged cove with a restless boom. Before we re reached Mink Island, the mare's tails in the sky were trailing wildly. Then it was dark, and the waves at our heels were throwing the phosphorus out ahead of them. The stars only showed now and then, and it was hard to find the entrance to the cove. I sent Jan up on deck with the flashlight, and after a little while, we made out the sheltering points and crept thankfully in and round the turn to drop our hook. 
All right. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the series where I'm reading The Curve of Time by Muriel Wiley Blanchett. Links to this book will be in uh, the show notes. And um, we'll continue on with the next chapter uh, in our next episode of Flipping Dreams. So hope you have enjoyed this. Um, if you'd like to check out some of the other content that we've had on the show, we have interviews and other different stories and uh, adventures that are in our season one, two, in the beginning of season three. So please check out her backlog. And otherwise, I hope you have a wonderful week and find ad- marvelous adventures of your own. Thanks again for listening to Flipping Dreams. You can find Flipping Dreams podcast anywhere you love to listen to podcasts, or you can find us on RogueMediaNetwork.com. You can also find me on my social media, Facebook at Heather Renee May, on Instagram at underscore every day is May, or on my website at Heather Renee May. Dot com. That's Heather R E N E M A Y dot com. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Wait.